Good to, good to be able to gather with you all. For those of you who are guests, uh, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here in Taproot Church. Excited to get to preach God's word this morning. So I'm going to start with a question for us this morning. I just want you to think about it. Here it is. What is making you anxious right now? What is making you anxious right now? And maybe, maybe it's not right now, right? Like maybe you got into the groove this morning and you're finally feeling good. I think my coffee's making me anxious. But as you woke up this morning, like what was the first thing on your mind? Or maybe you didn't sleep well last night. What was it that was keeping you awake? What is making you anxious right now? And let's, uh, let's just carry this a little bit farther. I want you to ask this now, why? Why is whatever this thing is making you anxious? And then let's carry it even a little bit farther. I want you to ask this question, how is your anxiety helping your life? Like who in here is like, yes, Killing it because of my anxiety. <laughs> Not a single one. And I think, I think we can all kind of t- get the humor in that because we've experienced that. Like we, we know that our anxiety is not helping us a darn bit, right? It's not contributing at all to our flourishing. It's not adding value in any way, shape, or form. Right? One more question. What does your anxiety reveal regarding your belief and trust in God. What does your anxiousness reveal about your belief or maybe what does it reveal about the depth of your belief and trust in God? Now, as I think through that line of questioning for myself, And as I thought through that line of questioning, as I was thinking about all of your faces this week, I thought to myself, that's a really brutal line of questioning. Like, I think think we can progressively handle it, but then it gets to that that kind of final point where we ask, well, what what does this reveal about your belief and your trust in God? And that just kind of sticks a little harder than the other questions. But it's the line of questioning that Jesus uses here in this text. Jesus, as he continues in his sermon here, we remember that that this is his teaching on how we as his followers live a flourishing life under his rule and reign. It's how life looks under his good and perfect kingship. And, And his desire is for us to flourish. So much so that as we wrap up chapter six here, Jesus doesn't leave us with an option. He doesn't leave us with a suggestion. Instead, he emphatically says three times. And if if Jesus says anything three times, it's really important. And so in the span of these nine verses, Jesus says three times, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. 
And so let's not try to like skirt around the text or what Jesus is saying. He's actually saying and actually means and actually desires for us that we would not be anxious. This is what Jesus intends to teach us. So this text is very challenging. And there's much to unpack, so let's get to it. Our main idea for this morning is this. Jesus invites us to flourish by placing our hope in the assurance of the Father's love and provision, thus doing away with anxiety. One more time. Jesus invites us to flourish by placing our hope in the assurance of the Father's love and provision, thus doing away with anxiety. This is what we're going to try to unpack this morning from this text. Okay, a few things, though, uh, before we jump into our first point. I want to say anxiety is really complex. Uh, Anyone? Yeah? Agreed? Okay. We're on the same page. Uh, also, we all deal with anxiety in some way, shape, or form every single day. Agreed? Has anyone in here recently been anxious? Just raise your hands so that we can all know. They're like, okay, good. We're on the same page. We've all been anxious recently at some point in time. So this is, this is a common human experience. We all understand what it is to be anxious. But this sermon and this text, let's be clear, is not about guilting you or shaming you out of anxiety. This is really important because the tendency with a text like this is to take it and interpret it in such a way as if it's saying, if you would just fill in the blank, then God would fill in the blank. That's not the teaching of Jesus. Jesus is not saying, if you would just get your stuff together, if you would just have more faith, If you would just do more, show up to more church things and be more involved and so on and so forth, then God would be whatever. That's not the teaching of Jesus. That is not good news. Flourishing is the desire of Jesus. And so Jesus wants us to learn what it looks like to have abundant eternal life in him. And so Jesus' teaching is good news for us. So by God's grace, that's what we're going to work out of this this morning. I also want to say this, because of the complexities of anxiety, there is this reality that we exist with in a broken, fallen world, that that some of us have anxiety that goes deeper than others. Some of you in here this morning might be so anxious uh, that you are in therapy for it, or you are on medication for it. I want to be clear that that is okay. Actually, more of you might need to be in therapy than not. (laughs) That's not a knock. That's just reality. Our world is jacked up. It messes with our minds. We need help, right? And so as we work through this text, I'm not delving into any of the like medical, um, psychological world of things. I just want to encourage, if if you are a person who's in therapy, on medication, something like that, please don't stop because of this sermon. 
Like, if anything, continue to, to pursue help. However, we also need to deal honestly with Jesus' words. And I think one of the realities that we can assess in our world is that anxiety has become an overly acceptable way of life. I, I think, whether it be the world around us or in the culture of the church, anxiety has become an overly acceptable way of life. But Jesus teaches us that it is not the way of flourishing humanity. And so Jesus teaches us then how to flourish. And so for our time this morning, we're just going to break this down into two points. Number one, we're going to look at the reasons for our anxiety. And then number two, uh, we're going to look at the path toward the Father. Okay? The reasons for anxiety and the path toward the Father. Let's do this. Number one, the reasons for our anxiety. So I'm not going to read Matthew uh, 6 again, 25 through 34 in its entirety. Uh, in a minute, we're actually going to jump over to Luke chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can jump to Luke chapter 12. But the first thing I want us to see is that last week's text about not laying up treasures for ourselves in heaven uh, carries over into this week's text. Uh, they really are one that go together. I believe that they're, they're a single thought. Okay? And the idea of these texts together is, is that the pursuit of being satisfied through more and more will never actually satisfy so we can, we can labor, we can work really hard, we can go about our entire lives trying to accumulate for us all of these things, more and more things, you know, better, bigger houses, better, fancier cars, more food in the fridge or the freezer, more clothes in the closet, whatever, whatever it is, whatever you deem to be the thing or the person that's going to make you be less anxious, Jesus says it's not going to work. Right? We can... We can store up as much as we possibly can, we will still hunger for more. We will still wrestle with anxiety. It just doesn't satisfy. Therefore, and this is, this is really Jesus' line of thinking, is that we, can, we can't accumulate enough to satisfy us, to do away with our anxiety. Therefore, don't be anxious. It's really simple, right? It's so very complex. And so Luke 12 this is Luke's version of what Jesus says here. I want, to, I want to read a lengthy little bit here. Because the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching in Matthew is challenging, right? I don't know if anyone, if any of you have read through this and be like, wow, this is really hard. I think the, these two sections of scripture about not laying up treasures and not being anxious are two of the hardest passages I've had to preach on by far. Not because they're complex in their grammar or structure or anything, it's just because what Jesus is teaching is so ridiculous. When I say ridiculous, I don't mean not true. I mean just out of this world. Right? And that's Matthew's version. Luke's kind of, I feel like Luke drops the hammer a little bit more in, in how he records Jesus' words. So listen to this. Luke 12, starting in verse 13, and I'm going to read all the way to 34. It says this, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher... Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Right. Sibling fight, rivalry going on kind of deal. But he said to him, that is Jesus, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. 
And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus continues, he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? <clears throat> if then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So obviously, same teaching. Luke brings to light a few other things and Jesus' words are challenging. And the overall point is just simple, that storing up more doesn't actually lead to flourishing. If anything, it's the opposite. So let's assess then from, from Luke and from Matthew, what does Jesus say gives us anxiety? Well, I, think, I think to summarize it, it's this. It's the fear of not having enough which stems from little faith. Okay. So Jesus just kind of, we could just summarize what Jesus is teaching here in regards to what is bringing his disciples and his hearers anxiety. And it's this fear of not having enough, which stems from little faith. Okay. So this is really interesting because... <clears throat> What Jesus does is he targets things that are actually essential to living. Right? It's, it's, not, it's not like Jesus is, is picking on excessiveness, or at least it doesn't seem that way. I mean, he, he comes right out and he says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. So that's like the broad picture. 
And then you get specific, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. So Jesus, Jesus highlights food, water, and clothing. Now, I'm just going to be honest. As I study this, as I assess this, I think that those are reasonable things to be anxious about. Right? How, how many of us would like to eat, drink, be clothed? Good. It, it, it's, it's reasonable to understand that if we did not have those things, they would lead to some form of anxiety. But here's the thing. Jesus' understanding of life, Jesus' understanding of, of flourishing humanity, of life in his kingdom, while not neglectful of the physical, goes well beyond the physical. Jesus constantly has this way about taking these quote-unquote physical earthly things and kind of de-emphasizing them while not ignoring them, but doing it in such a way that just emphasizes that, that life is more than just those things. So in, in Jesus' teaching that, that life is more than food, water, clothes, he's not saying that those things don't matter. He, he's not saying to, to just ignore them, walk around naked, and hope that people hand you food and water. As adventurous and exciting as that would be. <laughs> Praise be to God, we're not dealing with that, right? <laughs> Simply put, though, Jesus wants us to see that life is more than this, right? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing, he says? Furthermore, what we understand and see in the life of Jesus is that Jesus lived out this reality. Okay, so this isn't just some kind of like uh, weird pie-in-the-sky idea that Jesus is talking about. This is the reality that he lived out. We know that Jesus was not affluent, he was born to a simple family, a carpenter's son. By this point in time in his life, it's very likely that his dad has died. And we know that for some point in time, Jesus was doing the work that his father was doing, carpentry, not making that much money, making just enough to live day by day. We also know that once Jesus gets into full-time ministry, he doesn't really have a job, so to speak. Later on in the gospel, he'll say that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's his way of saying he's homeless. That's his way of saying that, that Jesus, the, the king of the universe, is dependent on the Father ultimately and also on others to provide him a place to live, food and water, and clothing. So this is the reality that Jesus himself lived out. And so I think what ultimately Jesus is challenging here in his disciples is what can be just simply called a scarcity mindset. Rather than, what, what's happening is that rather than living out of this kingdom reality that they have been given an abundance, they're living out of a reality that they don't have enough. Um... 
I think this, I think this takes us back to Genesis. And, and really, if we just think to the whole story of God, we begin in Genesis, and what do we see there? What does God give to humanity? Come on. Everything. 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 Except for one tree. And they're like, I know you gave me everything, God, but there's this one thing. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a scarcity mindset. Versus believing in, trusting fully in the Father, knowing that the Father has actually given us and abundance. Okay. Now, you don't have to raise your hand for this question. I encourage you not to, actually. <laughs> how many, how many of you, though, like, ask that for yourself? Are you living from a scarcity mindset or an abundance mindset? Like, just ask. If you assess your life, do you think you have enough I know right now you want to say, yes, I have enough. I have plenty. God is good. Amen. But really, like as the week goes, right, as we head from Sunday morning to Sunday afternoon, do you have enough? This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy. We hit on this last week, but 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Amen? Godliness with contentment is great gain. And I love this. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. That's one of my favorite verses because I remember, I remember on occasion my parents would say, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of this world. And I'm like, mm, Bible says you didn't. So anyways. That's, that's not the point of the text. <laughs> the point is that God brought all the things into the world, not us, right? So we didn't bring anything in, and then he goes on, verse eight, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And then, and then the warning again, I'll just finish it off. But, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Oh, may the Lord make us to be a people who are content. So the disciples are, are fearful uh, they don't have enough. This is the world that Jesus is speaking into. And we'll talk a bit more about this in a little bit. But the second issue, uh, which really is what feeds the first issue, is what Jesus calls little faith. Uh, now, most of us in our Bibles, uh, it says, oh, you of little faith, as if to kind of describe an idea. Uh, the more specific way this is, is it's, a, it's, it's really a nickname that Jesus gives his disciples. Isn't that sweet? And what it is is, oh, it's you little faiths. Like, that's so awesome. Like, how many of you would just love to be called little faiths? <laughs> well, this is the nickname that Jesus gives his disciples, and we'll see that throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew as well. It's, it's used several other times. And to put it simply, what Jesus is saying is, is no, you need to remember the story. You need to remember your story, the story of the God of Israel, 
the story in which God has always taken a people who had nothing and provided for them, saw them through deep, dark, long, wandering years in the wilderness. Like if we read the story of scripture, we see it actually as a wilderness story where God's people are always finding themselves in these places and positions where they can't boast in their own doing. Where the only thing that they can do is point to and give praise to Yahweh. And so Jesus is calling this reality to mind that they they would trust in the Father. Jesus doesn't want us to live like pagan Gentiles, which is why he says there in verse 32, the Gentiles seek after all these things. Luke's version says, all the nations of the world seek after these things. And it's as if Jesus is saying, but you worship Yahweh, the God who parted seas, the God who dropped manna from heaven and made water come out of rocks. That's the God you worship. Why are you being anxious? The Father knows what we need. Chapter 6, verse 8. Jesus says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Again, verse 32 there in chapter 6, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Okay, let's just, just rest right here for a moment. As followers of Jesus, we are beloved sons and daughters of the Father who owns everything, all of it. And he knows exactly what we need. And he will give us what we need. And we can, we can boldly and confidently pray this morning and rejoice this morning. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. Or I shall not want because I have an abundance, because my God is abundant. Amen? Oh, come on. (laughs) Guys, thank you. Jeez. So Jesus doesn't want us to live like pagan Gentiles, but he's more than willing to challenge our hearts and to get get us to assess the depth of our trust in the Father. So ask yourself again, What does your anxiety reveal about your belief and trust in the Father? Now, I want to assess part of the challenge with this text. Has anyone felt challenged yet? Yes. Good. Jesus is doing his job. Here's part of the challenge for us. We live in drastically different worlds, believe it or not. Uh, 2021 looks a whole lot different than 2021 years ago, <laughs> right? Very different. And one of the main ways in which that our, our, our day and age is different is that we don't worry about uh, too little. We worry about too much. 
we, that's, that's our battle, is that we have an abundance. You might say, well, how so? Because I think, I think that's, this is part of the challenge. And this is where I, I want to just reiterate, this isn't guilt or shame, it's just reality. We have much. Like I would, I mean, we're here, chances are most of us got here in a vehicle or someone else's. Most of us probably ate this morning, had food in our fridge. We woke up in a nice bed. We had, like, like how many of you are like, hmm, what should I wear today? Right? Again, that's not, that's not guilt. That's not shame. That's just the reality. And it's not, that's not sin. It's just, that's what it is. But think about, think about this. Jesus' world didn't have food in fridges, water in pipes, and clothing in closets. So it's just very simple. What they did have is they were a very industrious and productive people who just literally every day had to work very hard for food and water and probably wore the same clothes that they wore the day before, which would actually be really convenient sometimes. Here's what, uh, so I started reading this book last week. Forgive the title. It's called At Your Best. It's It's a book on productivity. I like that kind of stuff. It's by a guy named Kerry Newhoff, and uh, this is what he says. He says, quote, unlike your ancestors' difficulties, most of your problems stem from having too much, not too little. Too many demands, too many opportunities, too much information, too many distractions, too many choices, too many people vying for attention, and way too much stuff on the calendar. Anyone? Okay. The results of this, then, in our world are extremely high levels of burnout and anxiety. So let's just ask this now. How many of you feel anxious, not because of what you lack, but because of that? Yeah. It's it's really overwhelming. Um, A study was put out. I think I have a quote for this. Yes. According to a study of 7,500 full-time American employees, more than 70% of adults in their 20s and 30s are experiencing at least some level of burnout. That means a stunning number of young adults are feeling worn out from work and life before they hit their 40th birthday. And, and that's, that's not because younger people are softer necessarily. Right, like the millennial generation and younger kind of always gets picked on like, oh, they're just a bunch of softies. Well, they actually work a lot. And what's actually interesting about it too is that our, our, our world, our civilization, our cultures have shifted from uh, agricultural to industrial to what's primarily now a knowledge-based world. You know the, the bugger about a knowledge-based world is you're pretty much always working because we have these amazing, awesome, beautiful pieces of garbage <laughs> called iPhones, right? That aren't helping matters at all. And you might be wondering, well, how do I know if I'm burning out? Uh, our, our coach helped us through the summer as we were on sabbatical because we felt really tired. <laughs> uh, there's four symptoms to burnout. Number one, exhaustion. Like you just are constantly feeling exhausted, tired, 
can't ever get enough sleep, even if you sleep 10 hours. Number two, inefficiency. Right? Like, you, you know that you have the ability to get a lot of things done, but then you go to get things done and you can't get anything done. Man, that's frustrating. Number three, increased difficulty in connecting to people. This is actually a really interesting thing. Uh, prior to sabbatical, my wife and I noticed we had a really hard time remembering people's names, which isn't normal. But it was, it was one of those, like, for the life of us kind of things, we could not remember a human interaction. Number four, difficulty in making decisions, which in part can be because of the burnout and also can be because there's just way too many decisions to have to make. So the question then is, well, what do we do? That's point number two. Point number two, the path toward the Father. The path toward the Father. Now, I was going to make this point, the path away from anxiety, but I didn't do that because that's not Jesus' goal. Jesus' goal isn't to get us away from anxiety. His goal is to get us to the Father. It's very different, I think. It's a very different motive. Jesus wants us to see and understand that as we move towards the Father, we're moving actually away from anxiety. And so his goal is to point us to the Father who is good. Now, to kind of connect the first point and what we just finished talking about, about too much, and to connect it to this, here's, here's the question that we have to ask. Uh, and this is, I believe this is Dallard, Dallas Willard's question. It's what would Jesus do if he were me today? Because here's, here's our tendency. Our tendency is to kind of think back to the good old days. If, if we just didn't have whatever it was, right? Like if we just didn't have plumbing or refrigerators or cell phones, our lives would be so much easier. No, no. So it, it, the... the the response is not to do away with all of these things. It's first and foremost to properly order them. But we do that by asking, how might Jesus live? Like if we were to assess the life of Jesus in the Gospels, we can ask, how might he live were he me, you, us, today in 2021? And guess what? He wouldn't live like a first century Palestinian. He wouldn't enter the scene and be like, guys, put the cell phones down. Toilets are overrated. You don't need showers anymore. Let's live like this. No, Jesus would enter into human history and he would live a perfectly non-anxious life in our presence today. And, and that's what Jesus invites us into as well as his followers, that, that we would be people who live as non-anxious followers of Jesus now. And here's why that's important. Do you know how much that would cause us to stand out as salt and light in an absolutely crazy, frantic, overwhelmed, I can't keep my head on straight or get ahead kind of world? Like how... I think the picture that Jesus wants to paint for us of the abundant good life is that, that we would be a people who stand out as flourishing even though it's not the way the world considers flourishing to take place or to happen. That the world would look in on us as followers of Jesus and see our generosity, 
our rhythms of life, our ways of relating with one another in such a way that would cause them to ask why. (laughs) And in so doing that we might point to Jesus. And so Jesus helps us to understand what this looks like. First though, I wanna deal with some what about questions. Does anyone here read this text and have like a bunch of what about questions by chance? Like, well, because let's be honest, I think Jesus in this, it feels, it can feel like an oversimplification of things. And so there's at least a few questions uh, that come to mind. Do I have those? Yes, okay, about this. First is this, well, what about working hard? Is Jesus telling us to just trust so deeply in the Father that we just can kind of kick back and be like, man, God, you're just gonna take care of it. This is awesome. I'm just gonna be lazy the rest of my life. No. No, actually, it's interesting because we'll get to this later, but he points to the birds and says that the birds are provided for. Intriguingly enough, though, have you ever watched a bird? They work really hard. I think, I think chickens are fun to watch. If you, if you watch a chicken, they don't do anything but work. I don't, even, I don't even think they sleep because I go out there sometimes in the middle of the night and they're really awake. <laughs> like they calm down, they get all weird and useless and just get eaten by foxes. But anyways, personal issues. <laughs> they work really, really hard, yet they're not frantic or fretting or worried. They work hard and they know that they'll be provided for. That's Jesus' illustration. So Jesus is not teaching us to stop working. That's actually an issue that uh, was dealt with in the Thessalonian church. If you go and read 1 Thessalonians, I think chapter four uh, talks about that. Go read that. Okay, second, what about planning? Anyone in here like to plan? I love planning uh, for the most part. Sometimes it gets depressing because plans don't come to fruition. But is Jesus saying don't plan? You might say, these are silly questions. I know they are, but they're legit questions. And so the answer is no. Jesus isn't saying don't plan, don't prepare, don't think about the future. I think it's kind of an impossibility actually. Right? It's kind of like that thing of like, if you say don't think about the future, what do you start thinking about? So Jesus isn't saying don't plan, but what he is doing is he's reorienting the way in which we plan. Uh, in other words, it's planning with our hands really wide open. It's planning and entrusting that uh, our, our days are ultimately in the Father's hands and he's going to establish our steps. Okay? Wisdom literature. Uh, third question that commonly gets asked is this, well, what about the poor, needy, and hungry? Some have found this text to be extremely offensive in light of a world in which we can look and see that there are many people who are without food in their refrigerators, without water in their pipes, without a roof over their head, without clothing in a closet, so on and so forth. And I think it's it's an honest question that we can ask as well as followers of Jesus. And here's the... Here's the thing, this, (laughs) we need to be careful, first and foremost, to not just be biblical literalists. 
In other words, if we, if we, over, if we try to overinterpret the text, what it does is it very easily gets us down a path of sort of prosperity type teaching. Kind of, if you would just have more faith, then God would provide. And obviously the reason that you're struggling with whatever it is that you're struggling with is because you're not having enough faith. That's, that is anti-gospel. That's not good news. That's not what Jesus is teaching. That's not the road we're on. Okay? I think, because here, here's the thing, Jesus doesn't give us an answer for this question, uh, at least not explicitly. But I think we see it actually more clearly in the Gospel of Luke. I think what Jesus wants us to see is that we, the church, are meant to be a large part of that solution. So specifically, Luke 12, 33 is the text that says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. And we don't have time to get into how that might work itself out. Maybe, maybe you're convicted and you need to just sell all your things and give to the poor. I don't know. Maybe there's a need that you're aware of that you can meet, but you might need to sell something to have the resources to provide for that one thing. Right? One, one commentator goes so far as to say that Jesus' emphasis in the text is that we wouldn't worry about our lives. And the implication then, though, is that we're to worry about other people's lives. And I think perhaps he's onto something, especially in light of what Luke says there in chapter 12, that what is, what's consuming the bulk of our time when it comes to treasures and possessions? Is it how can I get more? Or how can we be a blessing to others who might have less? Okay. And I think I, I just want to leave this with this, is that, again, this is, this is complex in the culture of abundance that we live in. It requires wisdom and a lot of thought and a lot of prayer. And so that's where we, as followers of Jesus, have to take on that responsibility. Okay, so don't, don't just hear me saying these things. You need to take this as a responsible follower of Jesus and ask, like assess your heart what is it after? What is it satisfied in? That make sense? Yeah. So what is Jesus' solution then? Well, I think, again, I just want to summarize it like this. His solution is to attach yourself to the right king and kingdom. The, the, the ultimate solution here on the path toward the Father, away from anxiety, is attaching ourselves to the right king and kingdom. So Jesus' teaching here is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's teaching us to seek first the kingdom. Why? Well, again, because the kingdom of this world, the system of this world, isn't working, and it just won't work. And so we have to set our eyes on something different, on a, on a different reality. 
And and this is the reality that Jesus invites us into as, as kingdom citizens, that we would participate now in his kingdom as those kingdom citizens working with him in that kingdom reality today. And so we seek first the kingdom knowing that that is what will truly liberate us and free us. We worship King Jesus because he left heaven. He left eternity and became human and was born in one of the lowliest ways possible, grew up humbly, obscurely, simply ministered to thousands of people who followed him, who who were attracted to him, who thought he was amazing, but then eventually left him because he was going to go to a cross. And he would go to a cross and die at the hands of Roman soldiers on behalf of sinners, on behalf of us. And he would be placed in a tomb, and then three days later, he would rise from that grave. And in doing so, Jesus has defeated Satan and sin and death and hell and offers us, invites us into new life. We live under this king, the king who has conquered, the king who is living today, who rules and reigns. So why are we going to baptize people into this kingdom? And maybe that's someone else here too. Like, we have a lot of water and only five baptisms because we have water in pipes. <laughs> if it empties, we'll just fill it back up. <laughs> but like, that's the reality. Like, there, there, there might be some here who you've spent your entire life pursuing this world, and over and over and over and over again, you just find yourself let down. And Jesus is saying, come, follow me. Be a part of my kingdom. So this is the overall invitation, is to follow this king and this kingdom. Okay, because here's our problem. I'm going to summarize it here. We live in a media-saturated world. We pour over a world of misinformation, bad information, too much information, looking for some king to attach ourselves to. Like every day we find ourselves consuming, trying to find something else to believe. And we walk away from it like, gosh, I just don't know what to believe. Might I invite you? All the while... All the while, we're not being generous, we're not praying, we're not fasting, we're not resting, we don't read or study scripture for anything other than a feel-good pick-me-up. In other words, we often look anywhere other than the true king. And Jesus is saying, stop. He's saying, if you, you, you want your anxiety to stop, he's saying, do not be anxious, look to him, the true King. Okay. There's just some more practical things that Jesus gets into here. Uh, two, two things for us. Get outside and practice the disciplines. Okay. No, notice Jesus' solution is to what? Look at the birds. Look at the lilies. I can't help but think that Jesus is just saying, get out and breathe in some fresh air. 
Watch a bird do its thing, watch a lily grow, and be amazed at God. And it will do a lot for your soul. Like it's an actual lesson for us to learn, right? Stop sitting inside. Stop looking at screens. It's not doing us any good. Just other practical things, like move your body, exercise. That actually helps with anxiety. I think Jesus, just so you know, Jesus walked a lot, and so did his followers. They walked everywhere, actually. They didn't have cars. This is just a practical doctor thing. My doctor told me this. Take vitamin D. He said, he said, we want to try to get as much vitamin D as you would get on like the equator level of humans. And we can't get that. As much sun as we have, we can't get that. But if we would actually take that, we would actually feel a lot better. Um, eat well. Start sleeping better. It was interesting, as we were trying to work things out with our coach, uh, one of the things we talked about was a lack of sleep. And he said, oh, you're not going to be able to change anything until you start sleeping. Like, you can't change anything until you just start getting better sleep. Go to the doctor, right? Like, if you, if you feel overwhelmed and anxious and tired, like, go to the doctor. Get your blood tested. See what a professional has to tell you about just your, your body. Our bodies actually, they tell us a lot. And we can actually practically steward them in such a way that it's healthy for us in the long run. Um, start saying no. Like, stop filling your calendars. Start saying no. God will not be disappointed. Okay? Start thinking differently. Start thinking, like, what does it look like to be flourishing in the rule and reign of Christ? This is just Jesus' practical, get outside, be a human advice. But he also tells us, teaches us, to practice the disciplines. Now, I think, what, I think what Jesus is doing here with the end of Matthew chapter 6 is he's wrapping up the whole of this section. And what we have to remember is that it began with giving generously, giving to the poor. So part of the discipline that Jesus wants us to practice to loosen the grips of anxiety is to be generous. Because as contrary as it seems to us, uh, giving, giving money away actually frees us from the grip of it. As followers of Jesus and kingdom citizens, we don't live on the same economic terms as Americans. We're, we're kingdom citizens. Jesus then would teach us to pray. Right? The Lord's Prayer right there in the middle of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus would teach us to do things like fast. And fasting is just a beautiful way to remind yourself that you're dependent ultimately on the Father. And that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Just as Jesus did. Other practical things that are really life-giving, uh, along with just saying no, is resting. Oddly enough, sabbatical or Sabbath is one of the practices that we as modern churches neglect the most. 
And yet God designed that we would work six days and rest really hard on one. So this is interesting. John Mark Comer, um, he wrote this book a while ago called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And I found uh, this quote that he, he talks about. He says, recently, uh, I read a survey done by a doctor who cited the happiest people on earth. Super interesting. Near the top of the list was a group of Christians called Seventh-day Adventists who are religious literally about, guess what? Sabbath. So this is, this is where it gets really interesting. He says, this doctor noted that they lived 10 years longer than the average American. I did the math. If I Sabbath every seven days, it adds up to, wait for it, 10 years over a lifetime. Almost exactly. So when I say the Sabbath is life-giving, that's not empty rhetoric. If this study is to be believed, every day you Sabbath, you are statistically and scientifically likely to get back an elongated life. The practice of stopping, because that's what Sabbath means, it means to stop, so that you can actually like physically, mentally, get yourself into a place where you have to realize that God is in control, will do wonders. And it's really hard. It's really hard. <laughs> Jesus calls us to develop a deep spiritual life of being with him before doing for him. And by God's grace, we're going to continue working this out over forever. I think just some other things practically that I'm trying to work on myself. Uh, journaling is important. I was listening to something earlier this week. It was a little sermon. And one, he said something that, that just stuck. He said, uh, you can go through a lot of the Christian life, listening to a lot of sermons, gaining a lot of knowledge. That, that's like the epitome of Christianity today for the most part. A lot of, lot of sermons, a lot of knowledge. But if you don't reflect, your heart actually becomes harder. And I think that within our fast-paced culture that doesn't know how to slow down, that's what we lose is the ability to reflect. And in so doing, it produces more hardness. And so would you try to start a practice of slowing down in, in journaling? One of the things that you can start paying attention to is when you have anxious thoughts throughout the day, stop and write them down. And just kind of put some question marks by them or, or, or ask yourself why. Why was I anxious in that moment? Why did I react in anger in that moment? Why did I respond in this way? And you'll begin to see and learn more deeply about your heart and learn to trust more deeply in the Father. Finally, I wanted to say this, live life in community. We cannot and are not meant to do this alone. We don't follow Jesus as individuals. We follow Jesus as a church. Right? And so that's what home groups are essential for. If you're not in a home group, sign up for a home group. Right? If you are in a home group, try to push a little harder or, or be willing to express a little more and then invite whatever that is to be prayed for. We need one another as followers of Jesus to point each other to Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, thank you that you have given us Jesus. Thank you that we are invited into flourishing. And I pray that you would enable us to be people who place our hope in the assurance of your love and provision for us. And that whatever our anxieties may be, that they would, they would be put before you. I'm reminded of, of Paul's prayer in Philippians 4, to not be anxious, but in everything by prayer and petition, make your requests known to God. So Father, we thank you that you are a good, perfect, loving Father, that you care for your children. Help us to rest in that reality today. It's in Jesus' good name we pray, amen.